This episode was recorded on Gadigal land and features voices from Noongar country in the southwest of Western Australia. Hi, I'm Beth and you're listening to Elements. Welcome to the fifth and final episode of our season on fire. And we're finishing strong with the biggest, hottest ball of fire we know, the sun. Now, having said that, contrary to some beliefs, the sun isn't actually on fire. It's really a huge ball of gas and plasma that glows because of the huge levels of energy released from nuclear fusion happening in its core. And while this is completely different to the chemical reaction needed for fire, you can't deny the sun is bright and hot and can burn you. So we're going to talk about it. In this episode, producer Danny Stewart discovers how examining a language can reveal how its speakers think about the world. We hear from a Noongar language expert currently decoding the ancient knowledge embedded in the links between words. We'll then look at how Noongar country is vulnerable to the impacts of our warming climate and what Noongar stories can tell us about resilience in the face of change. For millennia, First Peoples across the continent have passed down scientific knowledge through language, story and song. In the southwestern corner of WA, Noongar language has many associations between words that hold information about the local environment. The names for, say, a plant might be similar to the name for an insect. Or a name for a plant might be similar to the name for that time of year. You know, you learn the name of that bird and you notice it's the same name as that plant or a similar name to that plant. You get an idea that that plant must bloom whilst that bird is nesting. Or if you have a time of year associated with a plant, you might know, oh, that's the time of year to eat that plant. So you start to see that the way that people talk to each other in this part of the world in the First Nations language, when you learn that word, you're actually learning something about country. Kaya, my name is Dr Cass Lynch. I'm a Goreng Wajari Noongar Yok. That is, I'm a Noongar woman, a First Nations person. And my country that I'm responsible for and obligated to is the south coast of Western Australia, from Bremer Bay in the west through to Cape Arid, which is just east of Esperance. Dr. Cass Lynch is working in Noongar language revitalization. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow, and we're working on a South Coast Noongar dictionary uh, to help with bringing the Noongar language back to Noongar people and back to the people who live on Noongar country here in the Southwest. Bringing language back is about more than just learning a dictionary. Dr. Lynch says that similarities between words can reveal connections between ideas in Noongar culture. So yeah, the word associations are ways in which knowledge is encoded into Indigenous languages. And a great example of this is the Noongar word for the sun. So the Noongar word for the sun in the sky, there's a couple, but the main one is nank. Nank is Noongar for sun. And it's also the Noongar word for mother, 
one of the few Noongar words for mother. And so that's the interesting thing about um, revitalizing Indigenous languages, that you're just you're not just bringing the words back into usage, but you learn about the culture that developed it in its word associations. So the fact that there is a you know, word association there, it's even the same word for son and for mother, implies a great respect for mothers. Noongar language beautifully captures the idea of the son as a life-giving force through this association with the ultimate life-giving force, mothers. And of course, it's true that without the son and without our mums, none of us would be here. The sun's radiation provides us with life-giving light and warmth. It upholds our entire food system through photosynthesis, boosts our mental and physical health, and of course, the sun's warmth provides us with the perfect climate. But in recent decades, the sun's warmth has become an increasing threat, due to human-driven global warming. Burning fossil fuels, land clearing, and all the other stuff you've heard about on the news is messing up the natural greenhouse effect. This is the process where some of the sun's radiation is trapped in the Earth's atmosphere by greenhouse gases. Dr. Jatin Kala, an atmospheric scientist at Murdoch University, says the natural greenhouse effect makes the atmosphere kind of like a blanket wrapped around Earth. When you trap radiation, it's like having a blanket on. It generates warming. So Earth's atmosphere is like a blanket, even though we can't see it. And the more greenhouse gases you have, the more long-wave or infrared radiation is trapped and the greater the warming. So, because of the excess greenhouse gases we've pumped into the atmosphere, it's getting increasingly hot and stuffy under our blanket. We've basically been making that blanket thicker, right? So if you go to bed, you, you put a bigger, thicker blanket on top of your body, you'll feel hotter, right? So it's the same thing. Even though global warming is, well global, the effects aren't being felt evenly. Dr. Kala says that Noongar country is especially vulnerable. Southwest Western Australia has what we call a Mediterranean climate. So during summer, when it's hot, it's really hot and there's very little rain. During winter, when it's cold, it's cold and it rains a lot. But since the 1970s, winter rainfall has been steadily declining in the southwest. When you add in the long, hot, dry summers, Noongar country becomes particularly vulnerable to feeling the heat, more so than other regions where it rains all year round. And in Perth, summers are hot, right? If the global climate is warming... And in Perth, we have this really hot summer. It's going to get a lot hotter faster in Perth than in other regions which have a much more variable climate. So when we look at climate projections from many different models, unfortunately for us who live in southwest Western Australia, it's one of the regions where there's very, very strong confidence 
And what I mean when I say there's strong confidence is that many of the models give the same answer, that we're likely to see a warmer climate and a drier climate. Mediterranean regions like the southwest of Western Australia, often referred to as the, the canary in the coal mine. The southwest has already experienced increasingly severe heat events. In the last century, the number of days with a temperature over 40 degrees Celsius has more than doubled, and this trend is set to continue. With the extreme heat days, these typically happen when we have easterly winds. By the time an easterly wind reaches Perth, it's traveled through most of the interior of the continent, which is hot and dry. So easterly winds are typically very hot and dry. So when we have these strong easterlies over a number of days, that's when we get record-breaking um, heat wave events. And we had a few uh, some years back, right? So, and, and one of the things we know from these global models is that that sort of weather pattern that brings these hot easterly winds, this, this type of weather pattern, we think, gets more intense in the future. And when it comes to extreme heat on Noongar country, it's not just the land that's getting hotter. So as our air temperature is warming, the greenhouse gas effect is also warming our oceans. Marine ecologist Dr. Karen Philby-Dexter from UWA says that as the average air temperature rises, we also see the average sea surface temperature increase. And this is having devastating impacts on marine life. On a global level, the ocean temperature is warming um, by just under half a degree uh, right now, but if you sort of project climate change into the future, it can get as warm as two to three degrees compared to our baseline data. And this doesn't seem like that much, but actually uh, two to three degrees can push thermal limits for many species in the ocean. And just like on land, certain pockets of the ocean also experience heat waves. Climate change isn't just making the ocean warm everywhere, it's actually making some pockets become really extremely warm. So the number of marine heat waves every year and how extreme those heat waves are is all increasing with climate change. One of the worst marine heat waves to ever be recorded actually happened on Noongar country in 2011. And this caused about 100,000 hectares of kelp forest to be lost in a single year. And even though the marine heat wave subsided, the temperatures sort of went back to normal, those kelp still haven't come back. A kelp forest is kind of like the underwater version of the forests we're familiar with on land. They're incredibly beautiful and provide food and habitat for many species. A healthy kelp forest is really a magical place to dive. Uh, so the whole ecosystem is made out of these brown seaweed, but they actually sort of reflect the light. Um, they look much more golden underwater uh, and they, they form these canopies just like a forest on land. And then underneath you have the sort of shaded understory that has a ton of fish, uh, bright sort of red algae, um, a bunch of uh, snails and uh, sea stars, octopus all living um, inside it. And when you dive, you can actually kind of go 
around on top of the kelp forest and then into the forest and um, sort of dive through the stipes. And it, it, it really is a magical place. So to lose such a large area of kelp forests in the 2011 heatwave was devastating because when the kelp disappears, so do all the fish, snails, sea stars and octopus that call it home. But the destruction of kelp forests isn't just catastrophic for these animals. It's bad news when it comes to global warming, because kelp is key to maintaining the Earth's carbon balance. Kelp forests are one of our ocean ecosystems that are actually drawing carbon out of the atmosphere, binding it, and well, we call it sequester, but essentially it means storing it in the long term uh, in the deep ocean. So if we have really healthy kelp forests, then we're actually helping fight climate change because we have these ecosystems that are scrubbing the CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it away, um, you know, for a hundred years or a thousand years until we can, until we can reduce our emissions and get everything together. So kelp forest dying means more carbon in the atmosphere, trapping more of the sun's heat and further exacerbating the global warming that's driving marine heat waves in the first place. When the kelp forests off Western Australia were lost in the heat wave, basically that's about 1.2 million tons of carbon that would normally have been cycled into the deep ocean. So what we're trying to do is restore those kelp forests and bring back that carbon sink. A few years ago, a population of kelp that managed to survive the 2011 marine heat wave was identified. Basically a reef that made it through the heat wave. So it's in the north, it's surrounded by turf, but there's kelp growing in that reef that made it through the heat wave. And when we do genetics on them, we can see that there's signs that they're sort of adapted to warmer temperatures. Dr. Philby Dexter and her colleagues have been using this resilient strain of kelp for a restoration method called green gravel, where they seed kelp onto gravel to create little baby kelps. The baby kelps are then placed in areas where kelp forests have been lost. So we've planted kelps in June of this year. Uh, we put about 80,000 tiny baby kelps out and we just went up uh, two weeks ago, and about half of them were alive and had been growing a lot. So it was really exciting. The restoration of kelp forests is a promising initiative when it comes to restoring the balance of heat-retaining greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. But of course, it's just one small piece of a huge puzzle. Marine ecologists like myself, if you're studying kelp forests, you're trying to understand these ecosystems, make them more resilient to climate change and, and really sort of keep them healthy, reduce the stress on them during this period. But we're one tiny part of the solution and we just still need the policymakers and the politicians and really good managers, governments, industry, all to fight the climate crisis. When it comes to solutions to the climate emergency, there's a tendency to focus on new technologies and tunnel in on futuristic thinking. But there's a lot to learn from the past. 
especially as this isn't the first time that Noongar country has experienced a drastically changing climate. Prior to the current human-induced global warming event, the Earth's climate had been relatively stable for around 7,000 years since the last ice age. And while 7,000 years might sound like a long time ago, Noongar people were there, and they've been continuously passing down their climate knowledge from that time. So for my PhD, I researched Noongar stories that reference climate change. Dr Cass Lynch, who we heard from earlier. And that came from discussions around the fire with elders on kind of unrelated story nights, um, sitting down, having a listen, having a cup of soup. And one of my elders, uh, Brydian Noel Nanup, was talking about our creation stories being located in a past and located in a colder time than now. And this connection between the past and a cold period is encoded in Noongar language. One of the Noongar words for our dreaming period, our time of creation, is the knitting, which is a very etymologically similar word to knitting, which is our word for cold. And then we have words for ancestors and ghosts, which is nidiang. Right, so you got knitting, knitting, and nidiang. All these words associated with the time before now are words that are to do with the word for cold. Dr. Lynch found that these word associations in Noongar language and her discussions with elders correlated with a 2015 research paper from Patrick Nunn and Nicholas Reed which made the connection that Indigenous people around the continent all have similar stories about seas rising after a cold period. And so they propose that Indigenous people are actually carrying climate memories since the last ice age. And that struck a chord with me. I'm like, oh, this is exactly what the elders are talking about, you know, that our period of dreaming, the knitting, was cold. and was followed by a warm period and it also was followed by a rise in sea level because we as a culture and as a people, lost lots of coastal land in our dreaming stories. And then you find out that really after the last ice age, the seas rose by about 120 metres. So I put these things together and then that particular elder, Brydia Noel Nanup, actually participated in research that responded to that paper from Patrick Nunn and Nicholas Reed. And so what what that allowed me to do was to explore it because an elder had led the way. It's kind of like it made it okay to engage in that research. And that's where my PhD took that direction of let's find more stories. And I wanted, I needed to learn the kind of scientific mechanics behind it in order to share the research from a Noongar perspective. Of course, the last Ice Age period was experienced all over the world, but unlike other groups who have lost the cultural memory of that time, Noongar people have remained in place. So the sea level rise happened all over the world. This happened to humans all over the world. But the other people around the world, there are some Indigenous societies that have stayed in place, but others have moved around so much that they don't tell that story anymore with the kind of fidelity of people who lived in place since it happened. So that's kind of where the research led me, is that 
Noongar people are telling a story of sea level rise that is at least 7,000 years old, and so are a lot of our neighbours around the coast and some Indigenous peoples overseas. And it seems that Western peoples, you know, with the advent of empire and people get moved all around the world, they aren't telling that story and don't have that climate knowledge in their cultural memory. Dr Lynch says another reason that these stories have lasted so long with such accuracy is that they hold hyperlocal environmental knowledge that Noongar people have depended on to survive. Australia is quite a nutrient-poor sort of place for humans to live. It's a great place if you're a Banksia, you know, like this is the best soils in the world. If you're a Hakia, like this place rocks. You know, humans, we got to be a bit more clever to get all of our, like, nutrition. And so you have to know a place very well. You have to be deeply in tune with it. You have to have really good localised, specialised knowledge. So people tend to stay in place. And there is a real connection to ancestors that the place where your ancestors are buried, you are obligated to and responsible for. And there's a strong sense of what you're doing for your descendants. So you wind up with um, Indigenous cultures, which are highly localised, highly specialised knowledges. So in this scenario, stories that need to be, have high fidelity, stories that need to share the right information to thrive in place, have to be told properly, have to be told a certain way. So people are entrusted in our societies to tell certain stories. And you might have heard this, you know, that You can't tell Indigenous stories. Um, The right person has to tell the story. And that's really where this comes from because it's not a right to perform a play. It's not a right to repeat words. You are responsible to making sure the next generation gets the right information which has been handed down by our ancestors. So that could be a clue as to how the stories could have survived with this kind of accuracy for so long. It's because really your life depends on it. You know, the rise in sea level was so disruptive that really Noongar culture has never forgotten it. And now that we face the climate emergency, it's like, well, see, it just continues to be relevant. When it comes to climate solutions, the tech industry has a loud voice. In my research for this story, I've come across proposals for large-scale solar engineering projects, like building a giant shield between Earth and the sun. But if science fiction has taught us anything, these kinds of endeavours can go pretty badly. And maybe futuristic big tech actually isn't what we need. If you live in a globalised world, you imagine, oh, this is the best humans have ever had it. We're so smart. We're so advanced. We should just keep doing this and we will solve the climate crisis if we just keep being brilliant and smart and create developments and technologies. We'll use technology to get out of this uh, climate crisis. And all this research and cleverness that we've got actually haven't created the solutions that we were hoping for in the time that we need to make them. Dr Lynch says Indigenous climate knowledge offers an alternative, a conceptual shift that suggests viewing country not as a commodity, but something to meaningfully engage with on a local level. So the Noongar climate stories are offering not only information about how to survive climate change, 
but is also highlighting the differences in worldview between Indigenous peoples in Australia and the models of globalised empire and capital that have been placed over the top of Indigenous cultures in Australia. So the Indigenous climate stories are offering an alternative worldview that could possibly transform the way that we respond to the climate crisis. Indigenous stories suggest a localised response and they suggest settling into place, connecting to country, and that having a strong localised knowledge is how you get through climate change. Thank you to Danny and thank you for listening. This was the final episode of the second season of Elements. You can listen to past episodes wherever you find your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to be in the know about next season. In the meantime, you can visit us at particle.scitech.org.au for more WA science content. And there's a link to the transcript and citations for today's episode in the show notes. This episode was hosted by Beth Maskell. Produced by Danny. Our executive producers are Michelle Aitken, Sound design was by Michelle Aitken, Alicia Gitani. And artwork was by Gabriel Ibius. We'd also like to thank our guest experts for this episode Karen Sylvie Dexter, Justin Carla, and Dr. Kath Lynch. And a special thank you to Michael Gatt, Lisa Larson Henry, and everyone who helped make this season possible. This Particle podcast was powered by SciTech.